From the PA Foundation, I'm James Millward, and welcome to Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. According to the United States Food and Drug Administration, eight foods are responsible for 90% of food allergies in the United States. Sixth on this list is peanuts. Though only 1% of Americans have peanut allergies, an allergic reaction to peanuts can be fatal. Symptoms range from minor skin reactions like redness or hives to swelling, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, throat tightness, shortness of breath, and wheezing. In almost all cases, the peanut allergies develop very early in life, around 14 to 24 months of age. And while the threat of developing a peanut allergy is present during infancy, a groundbreaking clinical trial has shown there's a critical time frame when a peanut allergy can be prevented. Here to talk with us today about this trial, the LEAP trial, and peanut allergy prevention in general are two PAs, Amanda Michaud and Brian Bizek, both specializing in allergy and immunology. Amanda and Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. So before we dive into peanut allergies, I always like to ask our guests what led them to a career in medicine and specifically what drew you to become a PA? So I, as a senior in college, knew I wanted to be in healthcare, but was not sure what. And I spent a lot of time shadowing various healthcare providers in different uh, professions, optometries, uh, different physical therapists, occupational therapists, physicians. And it wasn't really until I actually saw a PA myself as a patient that I even knew what that was and learned what that was. And after and almost immediately setting up a shadowing opportunity in college, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I, I ended up uh, even going to college just to play baseball. But after a while, I figured I needed to get a degree and, and fell in love with the sciences and ended up getting a master's degree in biochemistry and enjoyed that so much and enjoyed the nutrition side, I, I actually became a registered dietitian. And so I took kind of a, a long route. But uh, after doing that, I, I just had a strong desire for clinical medicine and, and ended up in PA school and enjoyed doing the allergy world where I get to combine my nutrition and uh, background with, with clinical medicine. That's great. I always find it so interesting, the many roads that we all take to lead us to our specialties. And speaking of specialties, that's the next logical question here is what uh, – led you to to both uh, start working with people who have allergies? For me, it was kind of a fluke. Um, I started out in trauma, and after two years, I wanted a change of pace, and I stumbled upon a job posting on my PA school's alumni job board um, at Midwestern University in Glendale. And as an allergic and atopic patient myself, I also have peanut allergy, eosinophilic esophagitis, eczema, and allergic rhinitis. I thought you know, how easy would this be, a great job that I would fit right into. And I soon learned that it wasn't that easy. Uh, there was a huge learning curve, but I fell in love at the, with the science, the immunology, and just became fascinated by all the breakthroughs that our field was making. And that was 2013, and I will never leave the specialty. I absolutely love it still today. Yeah, I would I would echo the love part. It's it's this is a subspecialty that I I will say at times feels a little bit more like a family than a medical group. Um, I just really enjoy this, and I had been in uh, in dietitian and as and enjoyed the the food side and the science side of it all. And after paying off my student loans, I 
met an allergist who was a good friend of mine and through a social group and, and he ended up having a position open and started working with him. And just, it was one of those situations where after just a week or two, it was, I just so enjoyed the focus, the specialization and the amazing impact you could have on patients' lives and, and just have enjoyed being in it ever since. I think it's great that you guys have both found such a passion for uh, working with patients and allergies. Now, in your interactions with your PA peers, do you feel like there's a solid understanding about allergies and their possible impact on our patients' health? I definitely uh, think no. Uh, Like other specialties, I'm sure there's a lot of misunderstandings about what we do and what we can provide to patients, uh, but especially in the food allergy realm, But allergic and eosinophilic conditions in general, even as simple as just severe allergic rhinitis, all have such a significant impact on patients' quality of life if they're uncontrolled. And it really is pretty rewarding, like Brian was saying, to have such a great impact on improving those patients and that family's quality of life. A lot of people don't understand that, you know, even bad allergic rhinitis, of course, there's limitations with other conditions as well, but bad allergies can cause missed work or patients not being able to do the things that they enjoy. So it's great to be able to help patients and families with those aspects of their life. Yeah, I I would love to see a misinformation index for different subspecialties. And I I think asthma allergy would have to be close to the top. So many patients and providers have maybe a general knowledge of what's going on, but there's so much influence from social media and other aspects um, in all areas for sure. But it just seems like we see that a lot with with allergies and everything from from gluten intolerance. So there is a pretty good base understanding by a lot of our peers, but then then that knowledge kind of gets thinner and sometimes more um, less solid information creeps in. So the more we can help, you know, with general practitioners just understanding really what's out there, what's a true allergy and the amazing impact we can have on these things, um, the better. So some some knowledge, but more is always better in this case. I agree, and I think you both made some some excellent points there. Um, so clinically, let's let's go a little bit more general and broad for health risks, specifically for patients with allergies. What would you guys say are the most common thing that you see? We're thinking about you know just allergic rhinitis and rhinosinusitis. We do have a risk of, of course, recurrent sinus infections. There's also a risk of more intense. Uh, complications, even including abscesses, though those are rare, that can happen. Um, And that can all lead to missed work and other issues uh, related in the patient's life. Um, When it comes to asthma, of course, uncontrolled asthma, though we have excellent guidelines in place, we know they're not followed very well. And that can, of course, lead to unnecessary ER visits and uh, oral corticosteroid use, which have substantial risk. Um, And of course, when it comes to misinformation over food allergy, and we can see almost like, I guess, over misinformation where people are unnecessarily scared and and it really affects their quality of life and they're very restricted, or even a complete lack of, of understanding of the possible uh, accidental exposures and reactions and what to do about them. Uh, so there's a lot. Yeah, I would. Yeah, some patients, we, we have a term called the allergic or atopic march, and some people will develop an allergy in one area, maybe allergic rhinitis, and, and that that can often march its way to atopic dermatitis and asthma. So there is a risk of, of progression of either the, the current 
problem, wherever that may be, and then actually becoming a more significant, more systemic problem. And the other part is this, there's a strong genetic prevalence. So a lot of times if you can, if you can impact the parents in this case, and then, then they know what to expect and know that their child has a higher risk of, of allergic rhinitis or asthma, then sometimes you can even start to treat the parents and, and secondarily end up helping their family. So for our listeners, let's dive into the LEAP trial, the Learning Early About Peanut Allergy trial. Uh, what can you two tell us about that? So the LEAP trial was a trial based on the observation that children in Israel were significantly less likely to have peanut allergy when compared to children in the UK. And the researchers hypothesized that it was because Israeli children were introduced to peanut-containing foods very early in life, like approximately six to seven months of age. And not only that, but in higher amounts and in large quantities, especially compared to children in the UK. And in the UK, children were generally avoiding peanut-containing products until about one year, even later. So the LEAP trial took 600 children, a little over 600 children, between 4 to 11 months of age who were considered high risk for peanut allergy and either put them in an avoidance or consumption group, um, avoiding peanut until age 5 or consuming peanut until age 5. And then an oral food challenge was done at the end of that trial. And there was a huge discrepancy um, or difference in outcome in the avoidance group. There was a rate of peanut allergy in about 13.7% of children. But in the consumption group, there was only 1.9% of children that had peanut allergy. So a huge risk reduction. And ultimately, this trial and then subsequent trials have led to the new uh, early introduction guidelines that we have. Yeah, and that's a that's a great summary, and it, it was really an elegant and and amazing study. We've had fairly uh, consistent theory that exposure to proteins early may may allow you to be somewhat uh, less likely to become allergic to that protein later in life. This was just an an amazing um, opportunity to follow pediatric patients that very similar in genetics but one group was exposed to peanut, one group wasn't, and see the amazing reduction in peanut allergy. And just kind of that allowed an explosion of understanding of early introduction, and especially in something like peanut allergy, which is so potentially fatal. I think that's very interesting information about the LEAP trial, and it's always impressive to see studies that are well done that show such powerful results. And both of you have actually mentioned this, this term, you know, misinformation that floats around information regarding peanut allergies and allergies in general. So to set the record straight, what would you two say are some of the biggest peanut allergy myths or misunderstandings? Wow. I think uh, Brian and I could probably talk about this all day long. Uh, Mm -hmm. We could probably fill an eight-hour podcast with this information. Uh, And there's a lot here, but I think the biggest ones are that uh, positive testing does not equal food allergy. And just because a patient has a positive serum IgE test or a skin test to a food, that only indicates the presence of antibodies or something that we call in our specialty sensitization and doesn't actually prove that there will be clinical reactivity or an allergic reaction if that food is consumed. And so to my next, brings me to my next point, broad panel IgE testing should never, ever, ever be ordered. And there are no clinical conditions in which a full food panel or something called an infant food panel is another name I've seen for it should ever be ordered. 
And there are a lot of false positives, and these tests are really not very specific, so should never be used as a screening test. And we just end up seeing a lot of unnecessary testing, which then leads to avoidance of foods. And we spend a lot of our time actually undiagnosing food allergy. I would say I spend about 50% of my time of my food allergy consults undiagnosing food allergy. And it's not just that you are simply just telling a family, just avoid the food for now until you can get into an allergist. Because we also know, in addition to early introduction in this um, key window between 4 to 11 months of age, uh, and that can vary study to study, but we can actually potentially make somebody allergic if they're unnecessarily avoiding a food. And so this is a, a huge implication with these patients if they're having unnecessary food testing done and results are being interpreted as a positive equals allergy. Uh, so that's, those would probably be the biggest things that I would want other PAs and providers to be aware of and the biggest misunderstandings. Uh, from a patient and family perspective, I would say the biggest thing is that there are there's a lot of misinformation about how to properly treat allergic reactions, and epinephrine, which is a life-saving medication, is often not utilized like it should be. But then there's also a very significant amount of fear among patients and families with food allergy that their child or themselves could have a life-threatening allergic reaction. And, and while, of course, food allergies can be severe and reactions can, can happen, it's actually very, very rare to have a life-threatening allergic reaction to a trace exposure to a food, whether it's peanut allergy or another food. So there's a lot of misinformation out there that then can impact, you know, patient's life because of that. Yeah, I would echo what Amanda said. A blood test tells you a potential allergy. It, it cannot diagnose. And taking patients down a, a rabbit hole that, that isn't accurate consumes resources, time, and it ends up with inappropriate diagnoses. So just you've got to have an antibody response along with symptoms that match in order to have an allergy. So accurate diagnosis and then just letting patients and people know that we have treatments available for both prevention in that sense, we're trying to prevent peanut allergy in high-risk individuals. And then if they do have it, there are desensitization options for some things. And um, it's just, it's one of those things that you can live a fairly normal life. You don't have to, I have a patient that wouldn't fly on an airplane because they were worried about peanut dust. And so you can, we can help them take appropriate precautions, treat appropriately, but also understand when, when they are okay to, to live a normal life and have normal activities, um, even with something like a peanut allergy. Now, we know that many parents and caregivers are very concerned about allergies in their children. Fear of our children's health and safety can somewhat be all-consuming for parents as well and for caregivers. In your experience, what have you learned or seen regarding parental anxiety, and, and what do you say to parents or caregivers who may be anxious about managing this allergy, or what, what are their next steps when they find out their child may have a, a food allergy? One of the first things that I will say is to not get your food allergy information from the internet or online support groups on social media. Uh, there's so much misinformation, even fear-mongering, and even by what seem like reputable food allergy organization websites can actually send a message that can add more anxiety and fear. And I like to tell my parents, of you know, newly diagnosed kids with food allergy that any question they should come across that just crosses their mind, just these day-to-day -day questions that 
they might forget to ask me to try to remember to write them down and send me a, a portal message through our EMR system or call the practice and we'll get on the phone. And if it's more intense, you know, we'll do a televisit or actually see them to discuss these concerns. But I'd much rather be the one addressing these concerns here uh, with them rather than them getting information elsewhere. And a lot of times we're able to take these families and patients off the ledge, so to speak, by giving them some factual information instead of instilling more fear in them. So, you know, for example, you know, discussing with parents and patients that peanut really doesn't get airborne and there's actually really no need to truly be concerned unless there's been oral ingestion. Uh, a lot of these stories of people being exposed to peanut and having anaphylactic reactions if an allergist or someone like a PA in allergy who has a lot of experience reads those those articles and those news releases, we tend to see that there was actually a lot of stuff done wrong. You know, for example, a patient wasn't even having symptoms, but they were just near it and the parents kind of overreacted and gave epinephrine. And there's just these things are sensationalized by the media and can actually lead to more fear amongst food allergy groups. And it's just it's just awful that, you know, there's already some anxiety, some, I would say, healthy anxiety with being extra diligent and reading labels and, and everything. And studies do show that parents and patients at different levels, you know, of age and development have different levels of anxiety regarding their food allergy. But uh, just getting that information from a reputable source and uh, anyone with food allergies should be seen by a provider, a PA, or an allergist that is board certified at an al actual allergy practice, not someone who uh, does not know the evidence and the most up-to-date research. Yeah, trying to alleviate anxiety is a big part and, and helping parents understand that there are there are many food allergies that, that simply can't cause anaphylaxis. And then of those that do, that have that potential, there is adequate treatment. And it seems like the worst case scenario, but it's really not. We, we can manage that. We're going to do everything we can to prevent that. And with labeling of products and, and being careful, you can actually reduce the risk significantly. And so it's a difficult thing sometimes to deal with, but with good prevention and adequate treatment on hand, it's something that can be managed quite well. And to just try to reassure that, that doing reasonable food label reading, talking to grandparents and, and relatives where the child is going to go, those are things that you can do. And most of the time, these are very effective. And in worst case scenario, we do have a treatment that can be administered easily and safely and will completely reverse, at least for a short time, the anaphylactic reaction. So let's take some precautions and treat this appropriately. And this is something that we can treat and manage quite well. I think those are both great suggestions, allowing the caregivers and the parents to gain confidence that they will be able to do this safely, I think is a key point there. Now, so much of what we've talked about so far, it hinges on the need for early intervention and access to accurate information and care with specialized providers, right? So for a lot of families, this can be quite challenging. And children in underserved communities especially are at even higher risk of not receiving early interventions or care in any way. We talked with a registered dietitian, Sherry Coleman Collins of the National Peanut Board about this concern, and this is what she had to say. All healthcare professionals should be on the same page when it comes to the introduction of potential allergens. The guidelines now say that 
allergens, specifically peanuts, should be introduced starting around four to six months based on the child's risk. PAs can play an important part in identifying the children at highest risk and making sure they get a referral to an allergist if they need it. And then for all other families, making sure that they know that they can start introducing potential allergens in infant safe ways, starting at about six months when they start introducing other solid foods. Thank you, Sherry, for your advice and your tips. Now, I'd love to hear from both of you on this topic as well. How can we as PAs, especially those who see and treat families throughout their lifespan, uh, help ensure patients and caregivers are introduced to this information during critical times when the intervention is actually still possible? I think one thing to mention is the importance of providers that see children to be aware of what makes an infant high risk. And those requirements would be presence of severe eczema, egg allergy, or both. And in some cases, we'll even consider the patient with mild to moderate eczema um, with elevated risk as well. And so being able to identify those patients and start the discussion and plant the seed early. You can start the discussion when mom is pregnant. You can start the discussion at a well child check, even at three to four months or so, uh, before we even get to that point of introduction. And we, of course, definitely consider rural disparities are a concern to us about, you know, how do these patients get access to an allergy clinic or an allergy provider? And a lot of times, you know, when we have patients that do commute, and maybe Brian can speak more to this because I've always practiced in a kind of a bigger city, but a lot of times, you know, we see a patient and for that initial consult, we can do the testing at the first visit, or if we do order blood work, follow up with them via phone or televisit. And really, it just really takes that initial first visit that we might spend a lot of time with the patient going over education and different aspects of food allergy that they need to know. And really, at that first visit, we can accomplish a lot. So even if someone might have an hour, two hour or more commute, I like to reassure pediatricians that we are worth that drive for sure. And it's so important, like we've talked about before, to intervene early. And you can potentially change the trajectory of someone's life if we do intervene early. So that's important. But then if there's also already a food allergy present, we can still improve their quality of life with proper education and even the oral immunotherapy uh, treatment options that we have available. I appreciate this question. I work at a community health center, and so this is very near and dear to me. And providing accurate information, services, and medications that are – I can get most of the medications I need very affordably. I can, I can get epinephrine auto-injectors for about $20 for a two-pack. So having access to community health centers and different resources, uh, helping patients that qualify obtain Medicaid, if that's important, and just treating – all the different, just looking at all the socioeconomic groups equally because food allergy doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care what your income is or where you live. And so we have various risk factors for different groups and acknowledging that and good provider education to prevent these early on. And then when they're present, be as aggressive in treatment. There's data that persons of color don't get their atopic dermatitis as aggressively treated and things like that, which are somewhat heartbreaking to hear. And so just good provider education, helping everybody who sees patients, whether family practice, pediatrics especially, know that there are interventions that make sense. And there are allergists that are very willing to help. And if you're not sure, pick up the phone and call and make sure that we're going that extra measure to prevent. And then when they're present to treat these things appropriately and aggressively. 
Now, we've talked quite a bit about the LEAP trial, which focused specifically on peanut allergies. But what about other commonly known food allergies? Are there similar studies being done that would suggest early introduction of other foods? So they're studying a lot of the higher risk allergenic foods in this way. And so far, studies have shown that early introduction of egg may offer some protection, but more studies need to be done to really know what that dose or how much egg is needed to establish that protection. There was a study last year out of Japan that looked at early introduction of cow's milk uh, before one year of age and showed that that prevented food allergy in a large cohort of patients, as well as another study on cashew. Overall, way more research needs to be done before we have something of the caliber of the LEAP study. There's a inquiring about tolerance study or in cohort group out of Australia that looked at six different foods and showed the prevalence of food allergies to be much lower when foods were introduced early. But some other high-risk foods we aren't so sure about, and we know that we can safely say that there's no evidence that delayed introduction is beneficial in any way. So we know that there's more that needs to be done here to establish, but in general, we're, we're kind of all thinking that we're going to have more data someday that supports early introduction of a lot of these foods, which will be awesome for patients and families that are high risk. As Amanda pointed out, I, the only real strong data that would be considered leap-like in this, in the sense that it looks at food was for egg, and it's not wasn't as conclusive. And I think it, it's interesting that back in 2010 there were still recommendations to consider avoiding foods during pregnancy and breastfeeding and early in life. And and now the American Pediatrics, you know, they have a, a nice uh, 2019 uh, review that it says there's really no evidence that avoidance is is ideal or important. And then going that one step further, early introduction of some foods uh, may indeed be protective. So it's an exciting time. The next, you know, I think 10 years will tell us a lot more about what foods uh, and proteins that we can expose young people to, maybe through breast milk or orally, and, and sort of register that protein as safe in the child, and therefore it's not seen as something that's allergenic or like a pathogen later in life. Well, thank you. I feel like you both explained that very well. And that's why I'm hoping our providers and those listening can really remember that side of things, that early introduction and exposure is the best way to limit uh, these negative outcomes that we see later on in life. Now, before we wrap up, uh, what advice would you give to other PAs working with families or caregivers of children, especially those who could benefit from these early interventions? So I would recommend just starting that conversation early and often and being aware of the early introduction data and that early introduction works and being able to identify these high-risk infants that have severe eczema and presence of another food allergy. And it's important to know that positive testing alone is not enough to diagnose allergy and that referral to an allergist can always be helpful if a patient either has a history, of course, we can properly diagnose that. And if they have had testing and we're not quite sure how to interpret those tests, that's where allergy referral can be really helpful in addition to just providing education that these families need. So, yeah, I would echo a lot of that. Um, you know, I don't, it, it would be uncommon for somebody to see a patient with severe rheumatoid arthritis and not want to send them to rheumatology, not want to consider some of the biologics. And I think that comes to mind, and I would bet nine times out of 10, there's a referral. That often doesn't happen with allergic issues, whether it's in the nose as rhinitis and the skin as eczema or asthma. 
but those are very impactful conditions and sometimes they're life altering and they limit activity and they limit career choices and like my patient that wouldn't fly. It, it's, it's, it's a big impact. So go ahead and if you, if you think about it and you see the impact, if a referral is possible, set that up. And then maybe the last kind of important take-home point would be for early introduction, we talked about that a lot, but if, if you have a baby, if you're treating a baby, a newborn or a neonate that has eczema or there's a high risk and there's a concern, please take some time to either become familiar with early introduction or refer them. That simple easy to do safe introduction of peanut protein at four to six months can potentially reduce the risk of hundreds of prescriptions for epinephrine pens and just a, a lifelong battle with an allergy that we could have prevented. So if you see that, refer quick and, and let us get in and help if that's not something you're comfortable treating on your own. I would also add to that, Brian, too, I'm sure you've seen this, that there is a misconception that patients cannot have skin testing before a certain time. We hear that a lot, you know, they would have been referred to us sooner, but they were told by their provider that we can't do skin testing until 12 year, or twelve months of age or something like that. And really, that is not true. We can do skin testing, you know, in the delivery room if we really needed to, if it was applicable. Uh, so like Brian said, prompt and quick referral, even if it's ahead of time, because then we can intervene within that crucial period. Do they have skin? Answer yes, then they're okay for skin testing. So that's the only requirement. I thank you both for all of your advice. Those are some great tips. And I do want to thank you both for being here today and for shedding some light on peanut allergies for us. It can be a confusing topic, and I appreciate both of you bringing some clarity to this for those listening and in hopes that we can benefit our future patients, their parents, caregivers, and these children. Thank you. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thanks so much. Now, for our listeners, we suggest you visit the PA Foundation website at pa-foundation.org for additional resources and information. While you're there, you can also be sure to catch up on all our prior episodes of the Vital Minds podcast. Until next time, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds.